We're going to be in Acts 4 today, that's where we're going to get started. Before we get to Acts 4, I did want to just mention something about Easter in general. Uh, it's one of those things that we as a church kind of have some idea about, and yet you see it mixed with the culture and it gets a little weird. Um, there's a number of theories about just the, the origin of, of the word Easter e- even. Uh, most of the theories connect it with a pagan holiday, a holiday for fertility. And, uh, and yet when you look at the historical evidence, uh, people have looked into this, there, there's nothing actually connecting it to a pagan holiday. Uh, I can see where you think that as you start to look at the imagery though. Uh, we know this, though. It's not a historical Christian word. You don't find it in Scripture. You don't find it in the early church. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that's just not part of the church history, really, in the sense of if the Apostle Paul were to, were to come in and you said, you know, Paul, happy Easter, he would just stare at you. He'd have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, but if you told him, you know, Christ is resurrected, that he'd understand quite well. So, uh, I mention this because I know sometimes people struggle with what do we, what do, we do with Easter? Well, we struggle either because it has these, these pagan roots or because it has this consumeristic fruits, you know. We, uh, all kinds of stuff, you're buying candy and Easter bunny things and, um, you know, baskets, all that sort of thing. It can feel to us sometimes like our holiday's been, been ripped off. It's been hijacked, Right. Kind of like the, the rainbow or something like that gets hijacked. I, uh, and, and I'll say this, I, I also struggle with this, this holiday sometimes to know how well to engage it or, or not. I, if I'm honest, I, I cringe when I see an Easter celebration that uh, includes a money drop and children running everywhere to grab uh, cash flowing around. I, I'm generally creeped out by any holiday that has a guy in a bunny suit taking pictures with children. I'm a little saddened by how little Easter has to do with the resurrection in general. You see, because of these reasons, a lot of churches in our country, in our history, actually refuse to acknowledge this is the holiday at all, just refusing to even use the word. I was part of a Reformed Baptist church on staff during seminary. I know that sounds weird, but I was. And we were told by the pastor, do not use the word Easter. We say Resurrection Sunday. That's the word to do. We use uh, and so I've, you know, re, re kind of wired my mind. I'm ready to go in, and we're going to say Resurrection Sunday. That's what we do. Uh, and you can imagine how surprised I was when I walk in on Sunday morning, and the pastor's wife greets me with a, Happy Easter! Uh, <laughs> Happy Easter? You know, looking around for the pastor. <laughs> um, honestly, though, I, I always thought it was a little odd that, that this day is, is set apart for the resurrection, that we celebrate that. And I, and I say it, I don't mean this in any, like, uh, well, I say it because God has set apart the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It mean, meaning God has actually created this holiday that occurs every single sun, Sunday, right? So, so if you love Easter, if you love celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and, and all that it means for us, all it means for our souls, then then by all means, come next Sunday because we're going to be celebrating the resurrection again. Easter, once again. Right? And we're going to do it the week after that and the next 50 Sundays or whatever it is till we get back to Easter again. And, and, and I say all that, not, not, you know, not to just be obnoxious in any way, but, but, but seriously, there is a wonderful thing that the Lord has set apart that we can come together and worship the, the resurrection more than just one, to, one time a year. Um, and, and so... Uh, although Easter might have pagan roots, although it certainly has consumeristic fruits at this point, uh, we can rejoice that here is this holiday that is celebrated nationally that, that gives us an opportunity to say, well, yeah, Easter bunnies, yeah, eggs, yeah, all these other things, but, 
but we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. If this can be used by the church as a means to talk about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and the gospel and, and all that he accomplished in that, then by all means, let us, let us embrace it in that regard. So there's my Easter soapbox for you, right? Um, I, I try to stay away from those things. but um, so, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning, and, and we're just going to touch on it. It's a little different sermon today. It's not as expositional as it typically is. Uh, but it's set this up for you. The context in, in Acts 4, what's going on here, is Peter and John, who are these two apostles, right, of, of Christ. They're in Jerusalem, and, and as they're going, they end up healing a lame man. And that's not an insult. It's a man who was uh, unable to walk, is what it meant. Uh, and they end up healing him in the power and in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and then later, they begin to tell people about Jesus who resurrected from the dead, right? That's the kind of thing we do. And, and the Jewish leaders there are, are so annoyed. In fact, the passage says annoyed right? It's, uh, that's what they are. They're so annoyed at them for talking about the resurrection um, that they arrest Peter and John. And so the two men spend the night in jail, and then the next day they, they come before the authorities, and the authorities ask them this question, by what power or name did you do this? They want to know that. Um, and so we're going to pick up in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, and read through uh, verse 12 there. So just follow along or listen as we go. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Lord, it's Easter. It's Resurrection Day. It's Sunday. Uh, this is a day, though, that our culture celebrates, uh, often with bunnies and hidden eggs and pastel dresses, but it's the day that our, our culture gives a little nod to this idea of Jesus' resurrection. Lord, may we do more than give a little nod. May we find true and real hope in the resurrection of Jesus and in the certain hope that we who are united to Christ by faith will also one day be resurrected. Father, as we look to your word this morning, would you, would you help us to see Jesus <clears throat> as the Savior, the only Savior, as our Savior? It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So as humans, right, as general humans, we are worshipers by nature. That's just the way we're made, the way we exist. Everybody worships someone or, or something. As, as G.K. Chesterton so perfectly said, he said, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. See, the, the word atheist means no God, right? Theist meaning God, and A negates it in the, in the Greek. And so uh, it's used to refer to someone who, who doesn't believe in any God at all. And, and I want to suggest to you that in reality, there, there is no such thing as a true atheist. Yes, people claim to be an atheist, uh, but we all bow our, bow our hearts to something or someone, right? 
And so if we aren't worshiping the one true God, we're worshiping something else. And, and the scriptures have a word for this. They, they, they call anything else, um, these the something else's, they call them idols. Tim Keller helpfully defines an idol as this. He says, anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you, only what God can give you. Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's the basic idea here. And we're so prone to it as humans that, that John Calvin pointedly said this. Uh, it's always stuck with me. Our, our, our sinful nature is by nature, or sorry, our sinful heart is by nature an idol factory. All these good things come. Right to us. And out they go through the factory as an idol. Something we want to worship. But more importantly than, than even Calvin's words here. The Apostle John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote this, uh, this letter to these churches who are in what is now present day Turkey. Uh, and he's writing to these new Christians. And, he, and the last thing he says, all this advice, and the very last thing he has to say to them is, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from idols. All this because our natures are, are sinful, right? Our, our natural selves, we, we, we seek acceptance and joy and significance and hope and security in all the wrong places when we seek those things any place but in Jesus Christ. So then this, this morning, I, I want to start asking a few questions, right? I, I, not just what you profess. Because there's, there's two groups of people I, I really want to to get thinking today. And on the one hand, it's, it's anyone who doesn't know Christ as Savior, who, who thinks it's ridiculous that, that, that we would celebrate that this man has died and resurrected, or even that this man is actually God incarnate in human flesh. It, it all sounds ridiculous. And I want to speak to those people because uh, that's my history, and I know that's many of your histories. You've been in that place, and you know what it's like to have that change. And the other group of people I kind of want to address today is those of us that, that maybe we just genuinely think, yes, Jesus is my Savior. Why? Because I've never thought about it. And I want to, I want to challenge us a little bit, right? Even on an, on an Easter Sunday, challenge us a little bit to think about what am I treating like a Savior? And so I'm asking myself, you know, everyone, myself included, is there anything in your life or anyone that you're clinging to as a Savior? So I want to examine our, our hearts and, and to see, you know, what, what idols we serve, what idols we put our faith in. Uh, and I want to answer this honestly. And, and here's the important thing you need to know, not to stir up shame, not to stir up guilt that, that's unneeded, right? But rather so that if needed, we can repent and direct our, our worship and our hearts and find our rest and our satisfaction in, in Jesus. Because that's what you need. That's what you want. That's where we find joy is in the arms of Christ. So do you under, understand what I'm, I'm saying then here? That, that even as Christians, you know, we, we still sin. You know that. We, we, we seek after other things with, with hope that they're going to satisfy and, and they're going to fulfill us. And, and just for this morning, I, I want to refer to these things as functional saviors. Meaning, meaning you probably even mentally would be able to say, no, that's not a savior. But they function in our lives as saviors. We, we worship them. We're, we're looking for them to, to save us in some regard. See, these functional saviors become our, our source of our identity, our security, our significance in the world. 
But why we get up, where we find purpose. Because we're asking them to serve as our God. We're asking these things to give us worth and joy. And listen, this is not some new phenomenon. Uh, 600 years before even Jesus was born, right? God, God spoke to his people. In the Old Testament, you know, he, he speaks to the prophets often. And, and God would, would give a message to, to someone. And in this case, Jeremiah. And in the 11th verse of the second chapter of this prophecy by Jeremiah's name, uh, God calls his people out for making functional saviors. Here's what he says. He says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, the first evil that, they, that they've done that God's calling them out for here is, is that they've said, God, we don't need you. We don't want you. We're done with you. This is the God who's created the world and provided everything for him, and we're just done with you. But, but the second one's the one that might catch you off guard. The second evil happens because, you know, as we've been saying, we, we all worship something. The second evil is explained in this analogy. They've, they've made cisterns. We don't use that word. It's like a, a big bucket type thing. And it's used for, for holding water, which is necessary for life in, in, in this culture, right? Only the problem is the bucket that they've made for themselves, right? This, this God, if you will, it, it's broken. It cannot hold water. And, and so it's absolutely worthless. It doesn't do what you even want it to do. And so he's saying, you, you, you've worshipped counterfeit gods who will not deliver you because they cannot deliver you. And the sad thing is, is we pursue these functional saviors. We pursue these counterfeit gods thinking, this is going to bring me satisfaction in my life. That's the hope. My grandfather's with the Lord today, but uh, we, we called him Papa growing up. And uh, I grew up in Houston, and he lived about an hour away on the other side of town. Um, you can do that in Houston, be an hour away and still in the same town. Uh, anyway, o- over the years, he, he cultivated this rose garden in his backyard. He had all these beautiful roses, and he had a vegetable garden. And there was a banana tree that actually grew bananas. And, and I can remember in the springtime, uh, I-, I remember the first time ever finding it, there's this, these bowls of beer would be out in his yard. Not just because he wanted to sip a beer every once in a while, um, but, but that it just seemed weird to us. And, and what they're out there for is they were snail traps. Um, they were out there because these snails wanted to eat up his, his vegetables, and this was a way of getting them. You see, the, the snails were attracted to the beer, not because they're connoisseurs of beer, but because of the yeast smell. And, and what would happen is a, a number of them would come to the beer and start to fall into it and then just, just drown. Um, some of them would escape uh, even after drinking some of the beer. And my brothers and I who uh, would, would help my papa out by, by sprinkling them with salt, uh, which just begins to dissolve them. Uh, I know Peter would protest today, but this is, you know, boys in the 80s. Uh, we salted snails. Um, anyway, so, so the image of this that really stuck with me all these years is, is that we'd go out there and there'd be this trail of just dead snails. And then there'd be a snail kind of, you know, weaving through the snails all dead to go to the same thing that, that they were going after as if maybe this will work out for me. Um, and they're just passionately in pursuit of this beer, thinking, ah, this will be satisfying. And it couldn't satisfy them. 
More importantly, though, it, it led not to the good life they were hoping, but to, to death for the snail. Now, listen, this is not a knock on beer. I know how you could make this an analogy for that real quick. Uh, beer is not made for snails. It's for people. Uh, but, but it's a picture of how we pursue false saviors that cannot satisfy and cannot save. And so then I want to think about, you know, what are some other things that might be our functional saviors? And we'll explore this a little bit. Um, so take a moment. Think about the last week of your life. A moment that frustrated you to no end. Just frustrated you. Or what made you angry? What made you sad? What, what triggered these big emotions within you? And I want you to ask yourself, why? Why did that anger you? Why did that make you upset or frustrate you? And I want to submit to you that it may well be because it was, it was because you made something an idol and it didn't perform the way you were hoping it would. It didn't do what you wanted. It didn't satisfy it in the way, right? It didn't justify your worth and you know, you were asking it to. Now, thinking still about the week, where, where do you go when you're anxious? Honestly. I, I know, we're in a room of church people. I go to God. Where, where do you really go when you're anxious or hurting or exhausted or just disappointed? It's going to start telling you something about where, where your heart is. Uh, on the other hand, what, what, what would you say made you the happiest this week? What were you seeking to find joy in this week? See, often we, we worship the good gifts of God at the expense of, of love for God himself. It's a very different thing that can get muddled, right? Uh, worshiping God or the gifts of God. Uh, Joe Rigney explains as well in his book, Things of Earth. Uh, he says, The heart of idolatry, then, is that we receive creation not as a gift, but as a God. We set the creator and his creation in the scales of values, and we worship the gifts over the giver. Creation, rather than being a means of enjoying the creator, becomes his rival. We become fixated and entranced on God's good gifts, seeking in them something that we will never be able to find. And he lists a few. Sex, food, approval, wealth, family, friends, job, nature, government. All of these wrongly become God's rival. You can take alcohol and medicine, right? Both of these things come out of God's creation. It's been uh, manipulated in some way. They're, they're part of his good creation, though. But uh, using them as, to escape reality, to escape just the weight of life, the, uh, is to make them into a functional savior. Food is a, is a good thing, right? But we can elevate it to a place of a false savior when, when we start going to it for comfort. Or when we expect too much from it. Laura and I recently were uh, invited to this amazing performance at the Kaufman Center. On the, uh, it was a performance of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. A great book, great performance. Uh, anyway, in the book and in the, in the performance, Lewis talks about this, this sort of gluttony that, that comes as a surprise. It's a gluttony that, that's about quality and not quantity. And Lewis actually refers to it as the gluttony of delicacy. It's a way of engaging with food. He says that it's an, it's an expectation that, that every meal, every pastry, every cup of tea 
has to be an experience that just excites the senses. There's something in that you're going to that you want to be satisfied in. See, looking to, to food to give you joy in, in your life, and it's not going to work. We often make a, a savior out of amusement and technology without even, even realizing it. Uh, I know that's one that I will fall back into uh, many times, right? Uh, I'll, I'll say there was a time in our lives when, when Laura and I, there was a, you know, during the day, I would long for the moment, right? I would look forward and think, some point tonight, and as fast as I can get to this point's the best point, best, but at some point, work's going to be done, responsibilities are done, kids are going to be tucked in their bed and stay in their bed, I hope, uh, and, and, and the hope was that we could just turn on Netflix, and we could just mindlessly be entertained, and this would refresh me. That was the hope. Without a doubt, entertainment was, was where I went to for comfort. That's where I went when life was exhausting. That's where I went and said, you know, save me, refresh me, satisfy me. I, I've been reading this intriguing book by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism. Um, I dare you to ask me about it sometime, although you may never get me to stop talking about it. Um, It's just been mind-changing in a lot of ways. Now, it's not a Christian book, and that's a little weird that I would tell you that it's been that powerful in that regard. And uh, and yet he he makes this point, though, that that really is beneficial to to our understanding of of the world as Christians. He, He says that unlike our current generation, that every generation before us has to deal with these larger questions of life uh, of life, and, and it's done in these moments of boredom, right? At one point, he, he talks about some guy who's saying, "I, he, he had no phone, and he's sitting on the beach, and he's he, he's looking at the ocean, and the whole time, all he wanted to do was change the channel because he's getting bored with this." Uh, but anyway, he he's speaking of phones. He says this. He writes, "It's now easy." To fill the gaps between work and caring for your family and sleep by pulling out a smartphone or a tablet and numbing yourself with mindless swiping and tapping. Erecting barriers against the existential is not new. Before YouTube, we had and still have mindless television and heavy drinking to help us avoid deeper questions. But the advanced technologies of the 21st century economy are particularly effective at this task. Amusement at every moment becomes our functional savior, that delivering us from boredom, right, on one hand, but, but really at a deeper level, delivering us from even having to consider our own existence. Ever having to think about death, or eternity, any of these bigger things. I tell you, that's one of my biggest struggles. Uh, what about you? I mean, do you, do you find yourself idolizing entertainment in some regard? We, we may find that we've made so many other things idols too. Maybe career or wealth when it takes the place of first priority over God, right? Good things that then become gods in our lives. It's your security and trusting in the Lord to provide or it's your security primarily in your bank account to provide. What about putting your faith in good health? This is a very real one. There, there's this temptation to just put our hope in a clean bill of health, Right? Because as long as the doctor says everything's good with you, then, then you can just assume that death is somewhere way down the line, far away, and we'll deal with that way down the line, far away, but not today. Another big one that comes in many forms is, is making a false god out of being in control. 
You find yourself getting angry at people when they don't do what you want them to do. You ever try to punish someone with, with silence or, or, or maybe an angry tone or, or that face where they, you know, they know I'm mad and I will continue this way until they do what I want them to do? You know, if that's the case, you, you might be making control your idol that, that you want to be. You're only satisfied when everything goes according to your will. It might be that relationships, even good ones, have been elevated to the place of Savior in life, right? Many of us are, are, are still trying to live up to our parents' expectations, you know? Well, you can be 40 years old and thinking, Dad, if you'll just be proud of me, right? Just be impressed. Doesn't matter how old we are. All in the hopes of, of just be proud and my life will be fulfilled. Uh, codependence, right? That's used generally here. Uh, but be it with a spouse or while dating, it's often a sign of, of, of asking the relationship to, to satisfy you, to save you. Does all your happiness rest on what your spouse thinks at any given moment about you? Or, or believing that you, you can't be happy as long as you're still single, you're just waiting for marriage, right? Are you a people pleaser and can't feel good about the day unless your, your boss or your roommate or your professor is happy and pleased with you? If you like me, then everything's fine in my life. But if you don't, nothing is. What, what relationally leads you to feel just like a failure and what makes you feel like a success? When, when you got praise for your ideas in the, the board meeting, right? You, when, when you got the best grade in the class or you, you know, someone told you you're so funny... It only, is it only then that you feel like you have real worth? And on the other hand, you know, if the laundry pile is so huge that, that the children have now named it Mount such and such, right? Or, or dinner was a complete failure and you're watching no one eat it. Or if you're thinking, I was late to absolutely everything this day, do you, do you feel like a failure in life? Are you relying on your performance at your occupation to bring you joy? Listen, it's okay to be joyful about your family or your boyfriend or your wife, your children, your job. These are all good gifts of God. We should be thankful for them. But don't live for them. Don't worship them because they are not the Christ. And that's kind of the point. Beauty and popularity, success in athletics or academics or arts, these are not your Savior. They can't be. They never will be. So, so listen, we, we, we could go on and on. I've probably gone way too far already on this, but, uh, but we could go on and on, right? Because the world is full of things that our idol factory hearts will seek to worship and, and, and to make into these functional saviors. But they aren't saviors at all, okay? A, a girlfriend won't mean that you're never lonely. The promotion, the raise, it won't fulfill you for very long. The, the good grade, the good bill of health, you know it's not going to last long. It's not. Now, a husband won't and can't live up to all your expectations. Netflix won't, won't give you the rejuvenation you're seeking. Alcohol might numb your hurt for a little while, but you're going to sober up to the, to the same fears you had beforehand. Money solves a lot of things, but it's not going to solve all the problems in your life. And you see, all of these things, though, these functional saviors are, are, are created things. And they weren't created to save. But, but Jesus, who is the Christ, the true Savior, is not created 
He doesn't have a creator. He existed since eternity past. Jesus can satisfy your deepest longings. Jesus can heal your greatest pains. Jesus can comfort your anxieties. He he can give you true rest. I know that sounds ridiculous to some of us. It's true, though. It's absolutely true. I want to take you back to Acts 4 now. We began to that, that beautiful statement, verse 12 there, where it says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Now, we're looking at it specifically as these things that we make saviors. But, but I mean there's no other name in all of existence. You can look out at other world religions. But there is no other name by which we must be saved. See, when we look to other things and, and other people to serve as our Savior, it's, it's kind of asking something that can't really happen. It's, it's like if you were to fill your car with milk and then try to drive it. It won't work. It's not made that way. It can't work. You're going to mess everything up if you try that. And, and so when you find in your life you, you have functional saviors, well, well, all we need to do, though, is to turn from them and to turn to Jesus, who alone can handle the expectation uh, of being a savior, being the savior. Jo- Joe Bigney says, Christ alone has the thirst-quenching satisfaction that you've been looking for in all the wrong places. You see, Jesus is God incarnate. Incarnate just means God in flesh and human form, right? And he dwelt among humanity, lived a sinful life, died upon a Roman cross as a sacrifice for the sins, not of his own, the sins of his people, you. And if you're united to him by faith, he died for your sins. But death could not hold Jesus. He conquered it. And so three days later, he was resurrected to live, not just again, but to live forever. Forever. And if your faith is in, in Jesus, then the kingdom of God is yours. We, we talked earlier uh, of these questions, right? To diagnose our idols. Now, to, to, to find your worth and your joy in this life, I want you to ask one simple question. What does Jesus think of me? What does Jesus think of me? He has a love for his people. He has a love for those who have come to him to find rest. Listen, no one loves you like Jesus loves you. No one loves you like Jesus loves you. Remember that because when we are certain of Jesus' love for us, we, we can stop trying to save ourselves. We can stop looking to saviors to bring fulfillment to our life. We can stop looking to others or or efforts, our own efforts to redeem ourselves. We can stop striving and and we can rest because we are already redeemed. We already have a, a savior in Christ Jesus. Now the scriptures are quite clear about that. I want to read just a few passages to you. I'm not going to explain them. I just want the, the Word of God speak to you here. <clears throat> Hebrews 7.25, speaking of Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hebrews 9.28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's already dealt with sin the first time. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And one more, Romans 8.38, I love this passage. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. You don't need other saviors. You have a savior. So then turn to Jesus and and be enamored with the glorious resurrection of Jesus from the grave, knowing that you too will experience the eternal safe place with Jesus all because of Jesus. Listen, if, if that's true of you, I, I want to try something weird, right? Every once in a while I want to do something weird. And, it, and it's just this. I want you to say this because you kind of know it, but there's something about saying it. Jesus is my Lord. Can you say that? Jesus is my Lord. Every time you find yourself falling into one of these functional saviors, these idols, you just say that to yourself. Jesus is my Lord. I don't have to try to impress you. It's okay if I can't control you. It's okay if I didn't get the promotion because Jesus is my Lord. Not my reputation, not my parents, not my spouse, not my girlfriend, not my job. Not their promotion, not my children, not my ability to control others, not my beauty or intelligence or success in any area of my life. Jesus and Jesus alone is my Savior. See, what we're celebrating today on this Easter slash Resurrection Sunday um, and every Sunday is that you were created in the image of God. And, and as such, as men we, and women, we, we fell into sin in the garden with Adam. But, but, but Jesus came as a man to die upon a, a horrible death on the cross, to pay for your salvation, and, and, and death couldn't hold him. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and, and you can live with Christ for all of eternity. See, you were, you, were pri- or you were purchased with a great price by a, a loving Savior. And so, Christian, you, you need to rest in that. Rest in that. Um, Ted, Ted Tripp, it's a good thing I was reading by him recently. He says this, No matter how mundane, routine, and slowly progressing your story seems to be, it's marching towards a glorious conclusion. There will be a moment when God raises you out of this broken world into a paradise where sin and suffering will be no more. Christian, believe that. Because it's true. Because that... That day is is coming, and it's going to be a real day when Jesus, who has already risen himself, will say to you, Arise. And our bodies, along with all others, will rise. Those of you that are here and just think the whole story of Jesus is ridiculous, I want to encourage you to reconsider it. 
I, I, I am someone who went through those questions in my own life as a philosophy major that drove me into a great despair at one point in college, even after I'd heard about Jesus. And it drove me into despair because I, I had to know, is, is this real? Is it true? Um, after a long time of looking into world religions, looking into so many other things, I came back to, to understand, to, to see that the, the story of Christ, yeah, it's crazy, but it's reasonable, and it's real, and it's glorious, and it's the only thing in this world that offers hope. It's the only Savior that can live up to it. It's the only place we can ever come and, and just rest, because it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are prone to worship by your good design. But we are prone to worship the creation instead of you because of sin. We ask for the Holy Spirit to show us what false gods we've been bowing to. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would bring us to worship you. Um, or to bring us to, to worship you more purely. Less divided, more fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.